thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Well, let's open up to 1 Kings chapter 8. You'll remember last time we ran out of time in 1 Kings chapter 8. I think there's something like 66 verses, and we covered 13. Not bad. I really thought and prepared, and I had not, you know, I had the right amount of notes, and not like I had an overabundance of notes, but we went off in different directions that God had for us, really emphasizing that Ark of the Covenant, that box that was four by two by two. It was made out of acacia wood, overlaid in gold. The lid on top of it had the two angels or the two cherubim. And the typology in it was glorious. We looked at the typology of acacia wood and and how the acacia wood really spoke of Jesus Christ in many ways. But wood also speaks of, of humanity and that wood was covered with gold that speaks of royalty or deity. And over and over again, that Ark of the Covenant is representative of Jesus Christ as we know that our Lord was 100% man and 100% God. He was both wood overlaid with gold in two natures uh, and beautiful, 100% God, 100% man. The only time we read of God saying that he would meet at a specific location was at the Ark of the Covenant. This was the place where it would be the symbolic, as, as now here in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is placing it, there. it's being placed into the temple and the temple is being dedicated. This would represent the enthronement of Yahweh as Israel's king. That Israel's God now has entered into his house that Solomon built, that his dad was unable to build. Fulfillment of God's promise. Telling King David, you will not build for me a house, but your son will. And so David got together all the supplies or much of the supplies ready for Solomon so that by the time Solomon comes, now he's fulfilling the word of God. And this box in the life of the old covenant was God's solution to the gulf between man and himself. It was the place where their failures were covered. It was the place where God manifested his presence in a localized way where he accepted the blood that atoned for the sins of the people, according to Leviticus chapter 16. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's what the lid was called, the mercy seat, so that the law inside that once condemned would be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. A beautiful picture and type of with a coming new covenant that Jesus would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So don't miss this. God is saying, I will meet you, and I will speak with you, and I will give you, which always reminds us in our relationship with God, even as we were praying in our give 10 time in Galatians, in our relationship with God, listen, God is always the initiator. It's always God reaching down. It's quite the opposite of religion. Religious systems that are man-made are the opposite And what I mean by that is that man is always trying to pull God down and cause God to respond to him. So I'll do all my good works so that God might bless me. That's you being the initiator. 
I will follow all the rules and regulations of this particular church or this particular religion. Why? So that I might receive some benefit from God. That's you initiating. But the Bible teaches us over and over again that God is the initiator and you and I are the responders. God is saying to us, in the mercy seat. God is saying to us in the Ark of the Covenant. God is saying to us in the wood of the cross where the very Son of Man, the Son of God, is hanging on the cross. He is saying to us that I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's why Galatians 3.3 is so vital. Where in verse 1 of Galatians 3, Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Now that, that can't be the beginning of a good conversation with someone. Especially your pastor. You're sitting there and you go, hey, Paul, how you doing? You foolish person. You know it's not going to end very well. I mean, maybe it's, it's not beginning very well. Hopefully it ends well. But there are those seasons, aren't there, where we, we need to be told that our actions are not wise. That's, the, that's what foolish means. That we're not walking in the wisdom of God. We're foolish. We aren't walking in the fear of the Lord. We're not walking in the wisdom of the Lord. Oh, foolish Galatians. And then he jumps down to verse 3. Are you so foolish... You know, first in verse 1, he says, who's bewitched you? Who's ripped you off from the simplicity of grace? And then by the time verse 3 goes, do you really think, do you really believe that what God started, you can finish? Do you really believe that? Do you really think that what God started when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and when you had no hope, when everybody had written you off, where you were lonely and empty and struggling, when you were strung out, when you were angry, out of control, when you were wandering around aimlessly, and on and on that list goes, do you really think that after God initiated, after He entered into your life, after He drew has taken you and drawn you to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit and sent person after person that's prayed for you and put you at just the right church at just the right time with just the right message. Do you really think that after God gives you new birth, he gives you, he, he, he tells you, hey, you know what? It, it's, you have to be born again. He says, you, you want to be saved? You want to be in a relationship with me? You have to be born again. And remember the religious Nicodemus, what did he say? What? I have to be born. I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? I mean, that's how we would think about it. Jesus is speaking life to Nicodemus, and, and he's speaking spirit because his words are spirit and life, Jesus says. But what does Nicodemus respond with? The natural? I can't, I'm not, I'm not going back into my mom's womb, man. That ain't going to happen. That, that's just weird. I mean, that's a weird statement. That's a, you know, they, they have books written of hard statements of Jesus, but I've never seen that statement in there. That's a hard statement. You want to be saved? Be born again. And immediately you think, go back into my mom and come back out? That ain't, I'm going to be born again? I mean, I, I don't fault Nicodemus for thinking that. I think if you and I were hearing for Jesus, we'd probably think the same thing. Because what Jesus was telling them was outside of their thought process. And he was saying, in order to have a true relationship with the Father, life has to come from outside of you. It has to come from the outside. God has to initiate it. And what is that? how is that relevant today? How does the ark speak to us today? Well, listen, Christianity is not based on what man can do. Christianity is based on what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel, the good news, isn't about how hard you're supposed to work or how many major changes you need to make in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't based on us working hard or reading a lot or singing loud. It's just the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about my insufficiency and God's sufficiency to change my life. That I can walk by faith 
and I can trust him no matter what. Not because of what I've done, because if, if salvation was dependent upon me or you, we wouldn't make it. We, we just wouldn't make it. We don't have what it takes. We, we couldn't keep ourselves saved. But salvation be, be, is dependent upon the author and the finisher. We don't want to have it backwards. We want to have it forwards. So with that, let's pick up in verse 14, because we do have quite a while, ways to go. But let's finish off our chapter as the king turns around. We introduced to the Ark of the Covenant, and now he turns around in verse 14, and he blesses the whole congregation of Israel while all the congregation of Israel was standing. And then he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall come from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised And I have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord in which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon turns around to the people after he was facing the temple. He turns around and he blesses the congregation on this momentous occasion. He reminds them of the history. He shares his testimony. Your testimony is so powerful what God has done in your life what God has done in your family. Just thinking, you know, my dad really wanted to do this, but God said no. But it was still good that he wanted to do it. And God said, no, David, you're not going to do it, but your son's going to do it. And, and, and all of this interaction with me, my dad, and God, and my family, Solomon says, it's coming to pass right in front of you. You are a part of the prom- You are seeing the promises of God. And that's just really encouraging for us. And I hope you're encouraged when you see the promises of God fulfilled in people around you. Now, I know you could take the opposite effect and you could say, well, you know, the Lord's just not keeping my promise. He's not keeping his promise to me. And all I am is waiting and waiting. But then my friend goes over here and does this. And my friend was over here and does this. And then I see my friend over there and woe is me. But it's not about you. It's about the Lord. And if God is fulfilling his promise all around you while you're waiting on him to work in your life, listen, all around you, all around us, we're a family. And we should be happy when the Lord's working in his family. Sharing our testimonies, what God has done, what he wanted. Man, this is my family. This is where I came from. But now, listen, you are watching God do the work. You're watching it. It's happening. This is the promise of God being fulfilled. I mean, I could say that for you right now. That, That me being here, sharing the word of God with you, is God's promises being fulfilled. Even though along the way, I wasn't sure if it was this, and I wasn't sure it was that, and I had this closed door over here, and this. But God, when he says something, he means it. And his hand upon your life, there's a promise for you. I recently, a friend of mine, just recently was reconciled with his family. It's a very difficult ordeal, very hard situation. And he was reconciled with his family. So glorious. He posted a picture. He's just so happy. They're all smiling. It's legit. Absolutely the Lord. Um, something that was completely impossible. Uh, it, it, 
it's not. The picture, they're there. They were there. They had a big service, a celebration. It's a pastor friend of mine. And he didn't wait one year. And he didn't wait three years. And he didn't wait five years. Thirteen years. Thirteen years he waited. And he just didn't wait. The the faction in his family between his sons and he and his wife was, was very... Uh, very bad, very public, very vicious, very vile. A, a whole blog was set up by the son to destroy his dad. 13 years, 13 years. It wasn't a year, it wasn't five years, it was 13 years. And yet God, just like that, <laughs> with humility and repentance, the Holy Spirit moving in the midst of them, all of those 13 years is sort of like the prodigal son in a very real way. Let's throw a party. Let's throw a party and God is doing a work. I was just so encouraged by that. I was so encouraged to see the work of God with my own eyes of someone that I've been watching and praying for for many, many years. I've been watching very carefully what the Lord's doing. That's what's happening with Solomon, except it's a momentous occasion. This is how it went down with my family and this is what's going on and and you're watching history, spiritual history, with the temple being built. Verse 22. So Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised. You might want to mark that word. Even if you're hearing it from someone else today, you have kept what you promised. God is going to keep what he promises. Your servant David, my father, verse 24, you have spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant, and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, and you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant, of your people Israel, that when they pray toward this place, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This is one of the longest prayers recorded for us in the scriptures. The longest of the lips, from the lips of Solomon for sure. And it's not a speech from a king. It's a prayer of a man. It's not a speech of a king where he's, you know, Solomon didn't have this, but he's not reading it from a teleprompter where he's just going left and reading right and reading, left and reading. He's, he's very similar in Jesus looking up to heaven, but he places his hands up in submission and he begins to pray publicly, thanking God and rehearsing the faithfulness of God in his prayer before the people. He blesses the people, then he begins to pray. 
He's going to speak seven different petitions, as you'll see in a moment. Seven different things as he looks backwards upon the faithfulness of God. And he ends it with a forward leaning on the, upon the, God, the mercy of God, lifting up his hands, crying out to the Lord. And then he has a general request in his prayer that God would hear the prayers of his people as he says at the end of verse 30, and when you hear, forgive. And didn't you like verse 27? I have a star next to it. Just thinking of the immensity of God and how huge he is and how foolish it is for us to somehow create idols that replace our worship of the God who doesn't dwell on earth. Even the heaven of heavens cannot continue. You, you are immense and larger than we can even consider. How much less? You don't, you, you're not going to live in this temple. Even though you're going to meet us at the mercy seat, you're, you don't live there. You, you are like Psalm 39. You're everywhere. You're omnipresent. And even at an early stage in the life of Israel, they recognize the immensity of God. And and isn't it true, and I'm sure you found this to be true, I have, that depending on what we choose to look at in times of trouble will really determine how big we believe God is. Or as one person once said, you can either have a big God and little problems, or big problems and a little God. It really depends upon what kind of emphasis we want to place upon the circumstances in our lives. And haven't you found it to be true as well that even the smallest of difficulties can cloud your view of the immense omnipresent God? It's very similar to looking up at the sun and how big the sun is and how, or even the moon at night, how big it's been lately. And knowing how big it is, I didn't look it up scientifically, but how big and huge it is. And you're looking up to it, and you can take your finger, and you could put your finger, which is not very big at all, and you could put it right up to your eyes, and you can block the view of the moon or the sun. As big as it is, you can block it with just your little finger. With our difficulties and our trials, as big as they feel, and as big as they seem, and how all-consuming they can be of our little lives, if we choose, they can cloud out the immensity of our faithful God. We'll miss the temple, and we'll miss the Ark of the Covenant. We'll miss the cross and the empty tomb because of the difficulties that we're facing. We'll forget about His mercy. We'll forget about Him hearing us when we pray, forgiving us, and pouring out His mercy upon us. He says, when, when you hear, verse 30, when you hear us, please forgive us. So let's go through and look at the petitions. In verse 21, or excuse me, 31 and 32 is the first petition. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now, I appreciate uh, John Corson from his commentary. He gives words to each of these sections. So I chose to not try to make up new words. I'm just going to use his. So this is a prayer about doubting. So if you're taking notes, this is a petition about doubting. If a man's accused of a crime and there wasn't any evidence, we wouldn't want to doubt God that he will be the judge. And isn't it injustice that really can cause us to doubt that God is just? Why are you letting him get away with it? It doesn't make sense, Lord. 
It, it doesn't make sense. You keep me on a short leash, man. You don't let me get away with anything. But this situation, man, why are you letting... I, and you begin to doubt the Lord. You begin to doubt the Lord when there's injustice. And we can see this in our lives when we lack information about someone and are unsure. Only leaning on the Lord will help. I was talking about this a little bit in our staff meeting this morning with the church side of things. I was saying that as a, as a fellowship family, as believers in the Lord, you know, we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt when accusations come, especially with leaders. Did you know the Bible says to not receive an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses? So that you're hearing gossip or hearing somebody say something, don't be so quick to hear it and receive it without, well, there has to be a couple of independent witnesses that aren't friends and aren't buddies and haven't been talking about it. And before you believe it, you need to talk to the person that's being accused to make sure you get their side of the story. But one of the ways, one of the ways that we can do that is by just praying that God, we would give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean that, that, we're, that they're not doing what they're doing or it doesn't mean it's not true. It just doesn't mean we're quick to judge. It means we give time for the Lord to reveal what we don't see and we don't doubt God when we find out something that's happening and go, man, this isn't fair, this isn't just. And, and yet the Lord is just and it's just we're dealing with doubt. And I, I've got a new phrase that I've been using. Maybe it'll be helpful for you, but I've got a new phrase when somebody is wanting to tell me some juicy tidbit or ask me a question that's kind of a, a temptation to get me into some gossip uh, in, at the level of my friendships and stuff. And you might want to use it. It's been very, very helpful. And somebody comes and says to me something like, hey, did you hear about so-and-so and what was happening over in that church or what's going on? And, and this phrase has been helping me a lot. I answer something like this. I wasn't there, so I don't know. You should probably go talk to them. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to answer that? I wasn't there. Why are you asking me? I wasn't there. And anything I do tell you is only something I heard. So why don't you just go to the source? I wasn't there. It's not my business. I know that uh, Shandell, overseeing the administrator of our school, she shared a phrase that she uses and it teaches and it helps the teachers with when they use it. And, and she uses a phrase like, that sounds like a good question for, and then you fill in the blank. <laughs> Well, that's great. That sounds like a good question for so-and-so because I have no idea and I'm not getting involved. And if you're going to slander a fellow pastor or you're going to slander one of the teachers or you got, you know what, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Why don't we call them up and we'll all just talk about it. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I'm not. Well, then, then you know what, you just got to do business with the Lord. When there's injustice and we begin to doubt the Lord, Solomon's saying, trust him in the areas of doubt. Notice the next one in, in verse 33. He prays, when your people Israel are defeated, so you already know the word there, defeat. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So if the nation was defeated in battle because of their own sin, only God can bring them back. Only God could lift them up. Only the God of the second chance can restore them. And we can see that in our lives, that God is our victor in our defeat. That, that he gives second chances. Though a man falls seven times, he'll rise again, even if it is our own sin. Even if it is our own fault. But what happens when we see a person fall and it is their sin? There's a sense in us, if we're not careful in the flesh, that we'll sort of think, well, you know, they deserved it. They got what they, was coming to them. You know, they were a pastor. They shouldn't have been involved in that. Or what did that guy, why did he commit adultery? And look at all the pain that he caused. No, no, no. 
in defeat, Solomon prays, bring him back. Bring him back, Lord. Only you can bring him back. It isn't it true for you and me? What, man, only the Lord can get us up. We can't get up in our own strength. The reason why we fell because we were in our own strength. The reason we stumbled and fell on our face be because our own sin. And so in areas of doubt and defeat, notice verse 25, or excuse me, 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn their sin because turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and give rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The third word is drought. When there's a drought of judgment, a judgment of drought upon your people because of their sin, and they come to worship you and confess their sins, what he's speaking of in the dedication and the prayer of the temple is when they come to temple with their offerings, the way that we will look at that, at that today is that when, when, you, when, when your people are failing, Lord, and they turn their hearts back to you, or they find themselves in church and they're wanting to seek you again, hear their prayers and, re, and, and bring rain again. Rain down on them. Water them. Take care of them in times of drought. Not only that, verse 37, when there's a famine in the land or pestilence or blight or mildew, Locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land and their cities, whatever plague, whatever sicknesses there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. Wow, you might want to mark that if you like to write in your Bibles. That's what happens when you begin to pray about these huge things and what's going on. You, you could say there's a, you're not happy with the condition of our country or you're not happy with the direction of politics and you're not happy with what's happened to our, your country, this country, or you're from another country. It doesn't matter, but we're in this country and you're not happy with the things going on in your country and you're praying for the plague of the country. And you're praying for, well, while you're praying, guess what God's going to do? He's going to show you the plague in your own heart. You go, no, 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 Lord, I was praying about the country. No, 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 no. I was praying about the leaders, and, 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 and here Solomon's going, no, he knows. When they come, it's, it's about the plague in our own hearts. And even when that's revealed, he says, even when that's revealed, then hear verse 39. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act to give everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you only you know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Notice the fourth one in verse 41. Not just doubt, defeat, drought, destruction. The next one is an interesting word. Uh, he uses the word denunciation, uh, but notice, moreover, I think he was just looking for D words. I can't think of another one to replace it. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as your people Israel, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built has been called by your name. Now, if you want to read ahead, and I encourage you to do that, by the time we get to chapter 10, Solomon receives a visitor, the Queen of Sheba, from a very far place that this prayer is already being answered as the fame and, and the, the, the wonder of God's presence in his nation is all over. I was doing devotions. I know, ladies, you guys are studying Joshua right now. 
in your Bible study, your women's Bible study, and I'm doing Joshua in my devos, and I was reminded uh, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday and, and covering today, how the fame and the power of God and the victory of God had preceded them into Jericho. Because when they met Rahab, Rahab said, I heard about you guys. We all know all about you. We've heard it, and we've seen it, and we're fearful. You guys, and, and what she didn't say, but from our Bible study, we could say, you guys spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and you really didn't need to. <laughs> you were afraid of us, but I'll tell you what, we're afraid of your God. And we know we had, it's almost like Rahab was saying, we have more faith in your God than your gen- previous generation did which is always a rebuke. You know, be rebuked by the enemies. You know, be rebuked by unbelievers. Uh, be rebuked by people that are trusting God more than we're trusting God is always embarrassing. It's, it's always humbling. But here, as others come and worship the one true God, as fame, as the Queen of Sheba will come in just a couple chapters, and they're gonna, she came to test Solomon. She heard about it, and then she came to test him. Lord, when they come from all backgrounds, you know, this is really a prayer for the Gentiles. This isn't a, a, a salvation exclusive to the Jews. Even Solomon gets it when a foreigner comes. When a foreigner comes and they pray to you at this temple and they cry out to you, hear them. Because God is working among people from all backgrounds, skin colors, languages, tribes, receiving anyone who will come to him now through his son Jesus. Notice verse 44. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, Wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. The word here is deployment. Deployment. If a nation was to go and be deployed into battle, God would truly fight for them. Would you fight for them? God, stand in the gap for them. We're in a battle. We're in a battle, church. And the Lord will fight for you. God will be your defender. God is our defender. Trust him. Be careful not to take things into your own hands. Those of you who have been with us for a while, you remember way back in 1 Samuel, the banner over 1 Samuel for all of us was watching David not take things into his own hand. Now, he did a few times. You know, so he came close to messing it all up, but God was so gracious. He came close to messing and then God was so gracious. But there were some opportunities where, and with one decision, he could have just blown it all. And he backed off, and he trusted in the Lord. Especially when it came to the conflict with King Saul. Remember when King Saul was in the cave relieving himself? David was told, go in there and get him, man. Here's your chance. He'll never see you coming. And David was such a, a man of reverence and awe toward God and toward the man that God put in leadership over him that he went in and just cut a part, of the gar- a part of the hem of his garment and then came back out and yelled out to Saul, I just want you to know, Saul, I could have taken you out, but I respect you as the man of God. Even though he wasn't acting like a man of God, I trust the leaders that God has put in my life, David says. And... We don't want to take things. If God's going to deploy us into battle, which he has, then, when we, then what he's looking for is, and, and remember each segment of this, each segment is when this happens and they pray, hear them. When this happens and they pray, hear them. When this happens and they pray, hear them. And you see how much is lost in our lives because of our prayerlessness. How, how much 
How long we anguish in a battle when God is ready to answer our prayers. That's where Saul, this is so early in the nation of Israel. They, they really haven't experienced anything yet, for the most part. I mean, they battled in Josh, with Joshua, and, and yet the whole lives, it's covering their whole lives. And then notice verse 46, when they sin against you, for there's no one who doesn't sin. You might want to mark that as well. None of us are sinless, no, not one. There is, they, they got that in the old covenant, let alone the new covenant. And there's, you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy. Whoa, whoa. And they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. That's prophetic, isn't it? That's a prophetic, that's a prophecy of what's still yet to come. He says, when that happens, yet when they come to themselves in the land when they're carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of the enemies who led them away captive, and they pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you've chosen, the temple which I built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you in all the transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant, the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by the hand of your servant Moses when you brought your fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. He says, now the final D word is defection. When people defect from you, when they backslide, and they finally come to their senses and come back, hear their prayers, Lord. If a nation turns from the truth and they repent, hear them, Lord. As we stray and stumble, it's only the Lord that can bring us back. And so Solomon, it says in verse 54, when he had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven, and he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord God who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. What confidence. Not one thing has failed. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to himself, verse 58, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his people and the cause of his people Israel or the cause of his servant his people Israel as each day may require. We've seen that phrase, uh, maintain his cause. The idea is to keep him straight, keep him on the straight and narrow. And another way of looking at it is maintain his justice. Like watch his back, Lord. May you watch him and sustain him, keep him upright. Let your heart, therefore, verse 61, be loyal to the Lord your God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Then, verse 62, the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. What a joyous time this is. Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Quite the offering. 
And so the king and the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered the peace offerings because the bronze altar was before the Lord, was too small to receive all the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. And at that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his Israel, his people. And may I just pray that into your life as we close today, that we might follow this verse, that we would go home to our tents. Of course, we're not living in tents, but in a very real way, our houses, our apartments, our condos, they are just tents, aren't they? It's just temporary. We're not taking our houses into heaven. Uh, We're not taking the couch with us or our favorite pillow. Uh, It's not so permanent as we think it is. It's not so permanent. We're going to go home to our tents, go home to our houses, go home to our condos, go home to the room that we're renting in our friend's house, go home to the place that we're sharing, and we're going to go home joyful. Why? Because of the goodness of God. And it's not about where we are in life. It's about where God is with us where we are in life. If we insert God into the situation... Then we leave joyful, so excited, glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for his servant David. May I just remind you today, I can't tell you in particular, but I can tell you this, that there's a lot of goodness that the Lord has done in your life and that you would just rejoice. Why don't you take a moment right now in this middle of our Bible study right now because I have one more point to make before. And let's just take a moment. You can scream, yell, clap, whatever you want to do. But let's just rejoice right now and obey the Lord. And let's just obey the Lord right now and rejoice in all the goodness. Maybe say something. Say something that the Lord is grateful. What God is doing in your life. You guys on the radio, you can scream in your car. Nobody knows. You guys watching on the internet, all the goodness. Yes, Donna. Yes, Oxa. May the Lord bless you and encourage you of all the goodness of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. The temple's dedicated. The Ark of the Covenant's there. The Lord's going to meet us. God is enthroned in his people. And, and we're leaving here. We're leaving here with all that we came in with, but with a concept of the goodness of God. He's a good God. We're living in a bad world, but we have a good God. And he's faithful to us. And so they leave here. Now, now... Now, now you're happy and smiling, and I've got a hard thing to share with you, okay? So, are you ready? Here's your part. Turn over to Ephesians. This is my part. Let's match our excitement, and let's match just thinking of something good. I know it's hard. I can, I can relate to you in some way of hard things day after day. I can relate in some way. Maybe not exactly, but I can relate. And yeah, it's hard. And I don't see really anything with my physical eyes of it ever not getting harder. My eyes of faith I can see, especially when my brother after 13 years was reconciled. Like that is, I can't tell you how many, I'm sure he's tired. I don't know if he blocked me or not, but I was texting him. I just kept telling him, this is nothing short of miraculous. This is nothing short of miraculous. And he wasn't answering me, so I thought, oh man, he blocked me. But he was probably just taking all these texts because he finally said, he finally responded and says, thank you. It is. I rejoice in it. It's nothing short of miraculous. And we're surrounded by that. God's working in our lives. 
Nothing short of miraculous. But here's where you come in. Here's where I come in. And please, just hear the heart of the Lord. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Did I tell you that already? You guys listening in on, on the radio, go to Ephesians 4. I'll read it to you, but notice in Ephesians 4, Galatians, Ephesians. So we're already in Galatians for prayer. Galatians chapter 4. Here, here's, here, listen to the heart of the Holy Spirit through... Uh, and by the way, by the way, somebody emailed me this week. I thought it's really important. Uh, they asked a really good question. He says, why, why don't we just follow the words of Jesus in the Bible? Why doesn't any pastor just teach just the words of Jesus? Why don't we just follow in the words of Jesus? Why does a pastor, and I'm, I'm going to explain to you because I'm doing it right now. I mean, we haven't really been studying the words of Jesus, but the Old Testament. But he, his question was, very good question. His question was, why does a pastor start with the teaching of Jesus and then turn to one of his followers, like in the epistles, and explain something there for in Ephesians? So it would be like me teaching you in John, and then I'd say, go to Ephesians, because Paul has something really good to say. So why do you do that? This is why. All of the Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof and instruction in righteousness. So when Paul is writing, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is speaking, he is God. <laughs> And so the God is speaking through Paul, and God is speaking through himself, Jesus. And God is speaking through the author of 1 Kings. Why? The whole Bible is inspired. All the words are from God. And Jesus, of course, as he comes on the scene and he speaks, we're, we're going to tune our ears to our Savior. He, he is our master, our king. We're following him. But when Paul says this, it's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the authors, the holy men of God, they, they prophesied, they wrote when they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, so that's why we, because there is a movement today, I don't think the brother was referring to it, but there is a movement today that's known as the red letter Christians. And that's all they do. They only pay attention to the red letters. It's a bummer if they got a Bible before they started doing red letters, then they wouldn't know what to do. But it's not a red letter. The whole Bible is inspired. From the very beginning, the very first word translated in the English from the Hebrew, in the beginning, is inspired of God. He's telling you, this is how it went down. And how can he tell you that? Because God was there in the beginning. And he says, in the beginning, God created. It doesn't say in the beginning that there was some evolutionary process and everything went happen and, and all the things that we're finding in science now and carbon dating. It doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, he's the expert on everything. And, and this is the main issue. And I'll get to Ephesians in a minute, but I just thought I should explain. I thought that was a great question. So I want to explain. When we get to now Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. It's the, one of the most important things in all the Bible, because if you can believe that, you can believe the rest of the Bible. If you have a hard time and you begin to explain away in the beginning, and then everything that's going on in Genesis 1, two, three, four. That lays the foundation for the rest of the scriptures, the beginning of Genesis. And Genesis is inspired. And, and then the question is, well, how did they know they weren't there? God was there and inspired them to write the history that we're reading today. Just a little bonus from a brother that emailed me this week. I thought it was good. So here, here's, your, here's, your, here's your and my marching orders. Verse 1, Ephesians 4. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, 
that with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you can picture the people leaving the temple, excited, joyful, going to their tents, just so enamored by the goodness of God. And we too, in a few moments, are going to head out. Some of you are going to go to work. Some of you are going to go home. Some of you are going to go work out. You've got a lot of things going on that you're going to do. You're going to head out, but you're going to head out joyful. You're going to end up home at one time. It's not just joyful in the goodness of God, church. But the Lord's saying, listen, you guys that are taking extra time on a Wednesday night, you guys that are sacrificing sleep, and maybe even your kids are going to be a little cranky in the morning, but you've made a commitment. I, I'll deal with the crankiness. I want, them to, I, want, I want my kids to seek the Lord. I want them to see what a pattern is in the midweek. I want, I want, to, I want to just show them in the world where you can just throw, to, throw your time into anything. You can watch four-hour movies, and you go to midnight showings. I just want to show my kids. I want to show my family. As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. I'll go to a movie when I go to a movie, but when the saints gather, I'm going to go gather with the saints. And so you're going to leave. You're going to leave this investment that you've made on a midweek. And you're going to leave just so thinking right now God put a thought of a good thing that he's done or a faithfulness that he's shown. You've got to understand, the Holy Spirit's begging us to live our lives according to the calling of God in our lives. Not according to our own desires, not according to our own thoughts, not the way we want things, but that God wants our desires to line up with his desires and that we have a walk worthy of the calling by which he is called. That calling of God in your life. And I don't mean vocational, and I don't mean ministry, I don't mean the calling of pastor, I, the high calling of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Like the children of Israel in First in Kings, to be a part of the covenant people. Even if foreigners came, and not many foreigners did come, the children of Israel would be at the temple all the time. And he kept praying. Every time they come, whether they're doubting or defeated, whether there's a drought or destruction, whether they've been denounced, uh, whether they've been deployed into battle and defeated, or they've defected and backslidden, no matter how they come, Solomon says, hear their prayers and restore them. And now we leave here saying, let's, let's have a walk, a life worthy of his calling. Let, let our lives be filled with lowliness and gentleness long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, thinking the best of one another, not the worst, seeking to build up a sister, not tear her down, wanting to, to help someone along the way, not take advantage of their weakness. Let's have a walk worthy. Let's be gentle. Let's be caring. Let, let's bear with one another. And, and let's fight, it says, endeavoring. Let's fight for unity in the Spirit, knowing that God will cap that with the bond of peace. So, Father, we ask now, as we head out today, and we are so excited just thinking about what it might have been to be, I mean, we've been at a building dedication. It wasn't the temple, but we were here. Many of us were here when we dedicated this building. We were here when we brought shovels and it was just dirt. And we had so much great anticipation. And most likely, if you don't return, we're probably going to leave this building and go build another one. And then we'll have another chance to dig up dirt and another chance to, to, to make more space for the kiddos and different things that we can do that we just run out of space for so long. And we just 
one day we might be able to do that. I mean, I, I hope you come back before that, quite frankly, but maybe one day we'll be able to dedicate another building to you, Lord, and, not, not, and it's, not, it's just a building, it's just brick and mortar, but it's also the place where you show up. It's the place where the church gathers. And so, Father, if, if, that, if that is your will for our lives, when we're beat up and defeated and doubting and just going through things, Lord, may you hear our prayers. And may we not just have a great speaker like this weekend just stirring us up, pray, 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 but let's just pray. Let's just do it. Let's just follow that brother and all this passion. Maybe, we're not, maybe we don't have so much passion. Well, we'll just borrow some of his because he's got enough for all of us. And we'll just take some of his passion and, and we'll just not, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll, um, that word came to me tonight. I was talking, we'll just be undignified before you, Lord. Just undignified. We're just not caring what people think, not caring what people say, but we're just so enraptured with who you are and what you're doing that, that God, it'll just be, we'll just be caught up with you, walking in your spirit. Forgive us for being so religious and stir in us, Lord, a freshness of your Holy Spirit. Stir in us right now a freshness of your Holy Spirit. And as we sing, God, receive our prayers, receive our praise. Let this song inspire us and speak to us. We're going to go back to the normal and the mundane. We're going to go back to the bills. We're going to go back to the divorce. And we're going to go back to the single parenting. And we're going to go back to our hopes being dashed and, and, and our dreams being shattered. That's that. We're going to life, life, life awaits us, Lord. But may we never forget your goodness. May we never forget that we're just pilgrims, that we really are in a tent and it's just temporary. We're just... We're just passing through, Lord. We're going to be with you soon enough. All our dreams will be fulfilled. All of our hopes will be consummated and we'll be in your presence worshiping you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Give us a taste of heaven right here on earth, God. And inspire us with the thoughts that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.